This time, NATO dead from the neck up or the best we can do for the money. Gunfight at the Okeski Corral. Is Russian firepower as good as they say it is? British forces, just 10 years to get it right. And two weeks to go, who will get your defence vote? I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. President Trump says America pays too much to keep NATO going. America pays 22% of the cost. France's President Macron says NATO is suffering from brain death. This is NATO's 70th birthday. And in London, during the next few days, the heads of government of every NATO state are due to meet to answer the simple question. Is NATO capable of defending the values for which it was established on the 4th of April 1949? Well, today, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has been meeting the French president in Paris. Here's part of what he had to say on the reasons for and the capability of modern NATO. I also welcome your support for uh, European uh, Union efforts on uh, defence. Done in the right way, these efforts can strengthen NATO's European pillar. But the European Union cannot defend Europe. European unity cannot replace transatlantic unity. A strong NATO and a strong European Union are two sides of the same coin. Both are indispensable for the continued freedom and prosperity of Europe. Well, joining me today is Elizabeth Braw from the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Scott Lewis from the University of Birmingham, and Professor Michael Clark, Associate Director from the Strategy and Security Institute of the University of Exeter. Um, Elizabeth Braw, to start with you, in response to what we've just heard, is it possible that Emmanuel Macron and Jens Stoltenberg are both right that while NATO needs improving, the European Union cannot go it alone on defence? Well, it's absolutely true. And I I don't think um, if you were to sit down with those two gentlemen outside uh, of the press conference that they they would dispute that. Um, Unfortunately, Macron's statement came at a very inconvenient time. And and one sort of wishes that he would have made his uh, opinion known in a a somewhat smaller format or smaller setting than uh, in an interview with with The Economist. Do you think the majority of Alliance members, 29 minus American Canada, would, Canada would agree with Macron? No, and I think, uh, in fact, uh, all of the members in Central and Eastern Europe would uh, absolutely disagree with him uh, because they know uh, from their own experience that it's uh, thanks to NATO that, that they can sleep relatively well at night. Mm. Let's talk and, about... Sorry, go on. And uh, while they... they uh, absolutely agree that that NATO has challenges. Um, Being brain dead, as we all know, even those of us who are not physicians, means that that you are clinically dead, and and, and that's absolutely not the case as those countries who uh, have um, uh, realistic security fears will be the first to attest to. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, what are the convincing challenges facing NATO? I think the challenge is, in a way, that President Macron was alluding to, although he overstated it tremendously. Um, and one is political consensus. There, there is a, a big gap in the political consensus among members. But we have to remember, as Elizabeth referred to, over 70 years, the fact is NATO's 29 members, soon to be 30 members, not one of them has ever been invaded. And that actually is a pretty good record. But that record, in a sense, is being taken for granted in a, in a, a 
political consensus problem that the alliance has. And then the second big problem, of course, is capabilities. On paper, NATO has pretty good capabilities. In practice, they're hollowed out, they're, they're duplicative and so on. And so NATO has really got to get hold of the capabilities problem. And we've said this every two years for the last 30 years. But it's becoming critical now because if NATO goes into the 2020s with this lack of hollowed out capabilities, then it really may come up against some some determined Russian probing that it won't be able to cope with. Mm, let's talk about the money then. Professor Scott Lucas, under the new system, each of the 29 countries pays according to its gross domestic product. And with America's contribution officially going down, it'll drop from 22 to about 16%. When you hear President Trump deriding the size of contributions by other countries, you wonder whether it's more about playing to his home audience because many countries are actually agreeing to pay more. Well, I think to bring it back to, to NATO, uh, you know, Harold McMillan, the British Prime Minister, used to talk about British brains and American brawn. Uh, now you could talk about the issues of money and planning. And the problem beyond Donald Trump's rhetoric is is that his sole interest is in money and possibly ego, divorced from planning. And as both Michael and Elizabeth have said, you have to have a discussion which brings together money and planning, which talks about capabilities. While Trump is in the White House, it is difficult to have that discussion at the top levels. That's why I think Emmanuel Macron was expressing frustration, although he did, as Michael said, overstate it. The question is whether at the agency level, whether at the level of militaries, whether at the level of intelligence services, the lines are still open where you can continue to discuss these issues of capabilities and planning and where countries realize that this will require more finance. And if that's the case, that's happening. You're just trying to wait the clock out until Donald Trump may not be in office as of January 2021. Mm, Elizabeth Brawl, this meeting between Macron and uh, Jens Stoltenberg today, how productive can it be, do you think? Well, I think Stoltenberg will do what he always does, which is why he's so successful in these circumstances, which is that he'll uh, flatter his uh, counterpart. He has done it with Donald Trump a number of times, uh, crediting him for prompting Europeans to spend more on defense. And I think he will try something uh, or, or pursue a similar um, uh, approach with Macron, because really it's, it's in nobody's interest to aggravate important uh, leaders of NATO member states or leaders of important NATO member states. And so um, Stoltenberg is a sense, in a sense like the Pope. He can, he can plead with, with people to, uh, to do what he wants them to do and uh, through uh, such um, a humble approach get them to, to uh, maybe tone down their rhetoric a bit. Yeah, and yet, Michael Clark, NATO cannot be an alliance of equal partnership. For example, a small member cannot have the resources of another country but may still have the same strategic anxieties. How does NATO cope with that discrepancy? Well, what it's always said in the past is that all members share the risks and so countries make contributions according to their size and so on. But, of course, some, some countries are more vulnerable than others, those that feel as if they're nearer to the front line geographically, wherever that front line is, and other countries like Britain and France who are not so, so near to the front line but feel that NATO is an important vehicle for our diplomacy and for our overall sense of security uh, but the overall idea is that all NATO states share a similar sense of their security and share the risks and that's what lies behind article 5 that an attack on one is an attack on all and will be treated as such and the problem is of course that Mr President Macron was pointing to is that that may have become a bit ad hoc these days nobody's quite sure if article 5 really would apply it's only ever been 
invoked once, and that was after 9-11, and that was the other way around, which was the European members saying that we will come to the aid of the United States now that it's been attacked. It was never quite intended that way around, but that's the only time it's been invoked. Uh, and yet, uh, we have the interesting position of Turkey at the moment, don't we, Michael Clark? Yes, and the Turkish problem is a real issue, because, I mean, a lot of diplomats say, you know, old British diplomats say, look, you know, Erdogan won't be there forever. Turkey is a, an important southern uh, tier member. It, of course, has an interest in the Middle East. It always has had. We just live with it. It'll get better. But others say that the attitude of Turkey is doing so much damage to NATO at the moment that we've really got to grasp the nettle. And it, it is difficult to see that Erdogan's policy for Turkey for the next five to ten years is consistent with being a NATO member. And my own view, I think, is that we ought to make Turkey confront whether it's going to behave like a NATO member or behave like a non-member. Mm. Elizabeth Braw, uh, back to the leading member of the alliance. What does America want to get out of all of this? Uh, the first NATO Secretary General says one of the purposes, or the founding purpose of NATO, to keep America in the European Defence Alliance. Apart from bluster, do you think that any American president would realistically propose pulling out? No, and if I can just make a slightly different point, I think some of the best uh, ambassadors that we Europeans have in, in uh, America are American servicemen and women who have served in Europe and, and uh, know our continent, including the UK, extremely well. And they have come away committed transatlanticists. And you see that, for example, with, with General Breedlove uh, and General Hodges, who uh, are both very strong advocates in Europe. And, and so and, and these are not coastal Americans. These are Americans from, from the sort of states that, that Trump wants to win. So I'm not saying that that um, servicemen and women will... will uh, decide the election uh, in his favor or not but they are an important voice and he uh, trump would wouldn't win anything by pulling out uh, even though he, he does score easy points by 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 putting us europeans down all right elizabeth Braw, we'll leave it there with you for now because i know you've got to go thank you for your time today professor scott lucas apart from the bluster do you think any american president would realistically propose pulling out of nato no i don't think that will happen but that's not the risk that we face now because on the one hand, you do have a temperamental, unpredictable uh, chief executive in Washington. And on the other, you are facing Russian pressure to try to disrupt the alliance, uh, not just through military maneuvers, but through political moves, through information warfare, uh, trying, for example, to raise uncertainty over Eastern Europe or just outside of theater in the Middle East, and of course, making entreaties to Turkey to try to distance it from the other alliance members. And I think it's not as much that you have a member dropping out as that you have this loss of confidence in each other. Because at the end of the day, if NATO is not one of a relationship of equals, it is a relationship of a collective. And if members of the collective are not the question of not contributing enough money, if they're not contributing enough in terms of support of planning and tactics and strategy, that's when you run into difficulties. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to this conversation is here in the studio with me, Christopher. It, it, it strikes me, uh, Scott, that that's you know, part of the problem. Um, who decides what should be the support necessary, the, the strategic, the tactical uh, levels that we should plan for? I've often wondered on a, a year like this, the 70th anniversary, just supposing we hadn't got NATO, I mean, would we say let's have NATO and would we have it in the form that we've got it at the moment? Well, that's an excellent question. And there was a lot of discussion. Just take it back more to 
before the 50th anniversary of NATO, as the Cold War had supposedly ended. You know, why do you need this organization that was created when you were facing a threat of the Soviet Union? And at that point, there was discussion which says, well, there are other challenges in the world, and collective activity is needed for them. I think NATO, in a way, to get to your points of tactics and strategy, has sort of been pulled by the nose a bit. You could think about the out-of-theater debates over, for example, Afghanistan post-2001. You could talk about trying to deal with the response to hybrid warfare as it has come about. And I think that that has, has really meant that if you're talking about what NATO needs to get back to, it is this idea of collective defense, not just specifically against Russia, but in terms of what does that mean in terms of secure military forces but also secure political structures and secure structures when it comes to, say, information and cyber systems. Those are the types of questions that need to be investigated without some of the theater that we've heard from leaders in recent weeks. I sometimes get the idea that we don't actually know what the, what the questions are at the moment, and that there are questions which we're not quite sure know how to ask. I was thinking just a couple of days ago with the, uh, the president of China. Uh, he was in Turkey, and uh, he or he authorized the the addition of something like 2.5, 2. 2.7 billion uh, US dollars investment reinvestment in Piraeus, the, the major port of uh, Athens. Uh, and you see that China actually sort of owns the port. And they would like to own the port, let's say, of Southampton and Hamburg, which they won't get, but they would like it. And you can actually understand why some countries start to say, hang on, Greece... You own the port of Greece. Mm. Uh, it, it, it gets into the, the period of uh, the authority of an outside country like China and an influence that it might have on on NATO and indirectly, I suppose, on the EU, with, 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 which with doing something which we hadn't imagined it might have done, say, 10 years ago. Well, I think you've made the questions very clear, Christopher, and I think that let's take a couple of other examples in terms of where you can start to look for answers. I think if you talk to the Baltic states, in light of what has happened to them in recent years, on the front line with Russia, and seeing what has happened in Ukraine, they would tell you there's an immediate (laughs) strategic and tactical issue that has to be dealt with. I think we see that with Eastern European members. And I think what you raise is a very interesting question, which is a different one, which is, but there are also economic questions that are not completely divorced from military calculations. Take, for example, the power of China. But remember that when NATO has been at its best, even during the Cold War, It did not talk about economic isolation. It did not talk, in fact, about economic warfare. It left open a space by working with governments, by working with political and economic sections, which said, militarily, we make sure we're there to defend. But that does allow for economic interaction. And that is the type of approach that could be taken with China, rather than simply just throwing the walls up and say, this is going to be the next battleground of the 21st century. And there we must leave it for today. Professor Scott Lucas, thank you very much for your time. Still to come, the future of the Royal Navy, the Army and the Royal Air Force. Also this week, the Royal United Services Institute is urging more firepower for Britain's armed forces because of the ongoing threat from Russia in Eastern Europe. The report says the British Army has a critical shortage of artillery and ammunition stockpiles and would be outgunned by the Russians. Here's the report's author, Dr Jack Watling. The UK's warfighting division at the moment could, if it generated the entire British Army's artillery capability, deploy 48 155 howitzers uh, and 27 multiple launch rocket launch systems. Um, A Russian brigade 
so a component of a division. They don't have divisions in the same structure. But a Russian brigade has 81 organic artillery pieces. Uh, and so you can start doing the math quite quickly on how, at that tactical level, British forces do not have a comparable level of firepower. Now, in the past, that wouldn't have been such a problem because we would have received air support. NATO generally relies on air support for about 80% of its deliverable firepower. But in a Russian context, the integrated air defence system would take weeks to break down. And so for those weeks, ground forces could expect between none and very, very small amounts of air support, which means that they would be dependent upon their own artillery. And in that, the UK is critically deficient. Well, still with us is Professor Michael Clark and Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, do, does any of this really matter? Oh, it certainly does. Um, not because, as Jack Watling was saying there, you can do the firepower calculations and so on, as he's done rather well. Um, but it matters to the way political leaders think they might use the military. In the case of Russia, um, Putin is a great, as it were, implicit threatener. Um, he never makes a speech about foreign affairs without reminding everyone that Russia is a powerful nuclear force. And he makes his sort of State of the Union speeches with little videos of, of Russian armed forces, not just marching past uh, the Kremlin in a red square, but in combat and lots of lots of explosions and lots of, of firepower on display. He, he likes all of this stuff. And the idea that, that the Russian modernization programs, which have been pretty patchy, but in the ground forces business have been quite specific to... European circumstances, those modernization programs do actually hold Western allied forces at risk because any one of us in the West, other than the United States, could not go up against Russia. Even collectively, we would find it increasingly difficult these days, even though on paper we've got more than they have. But, but their modernization programs are really quite telling. But seriously, Christopher Lee, how likely is, is this sort of conflict with Russia? Well, I think that. I mean, that's the immediate reaction, isn't it, to something like this? That you, you can't imagine the United Kingdom, uh, you know, the, the, the gunners, for example, actually having to sort of face Russia. Uh, you're part of it. We're just talking about NATO. There's where, there's where you all fit into that. Also, I'm very sceptical about you, you can't see things in, in isolation, although, although it's quite clearly uh, Jack Watlin's study is really worthwhile looking at, um, because the orbats are different. And the orbats that you might imagine, say, in the next 10 or 20 years are quite different. Having said that, if you are putting in, as we are at the moment, let's say a mechanized infantry into parts of Central Europe for the protection of, let's say, Western Ukraine, you might find yourself in the right formation to be attacked by uh, opposition gunnery. And as Napoleon would have told you as a gunner, a Corsican gunner, admittedly, um, well, uh, you are always going to find that the gunners do the damage. Now, we're coming to the end of 2019, the end of a decade, and big changes are happening in the UK. January 2020, we'll see a new government, and Britain may well leave the European Union at the end of the month. Well, Professor Michael Clark, you have co-written a book about these big changes and what they mean for British security. Um, as we face the uncertain future of the next decade, why should the 2020s be more uncertain and fraught than any previous decades? 
They will be more uncertain, or for, for sure, because um, everyone is coming to a tipping point. The European Union is not in good uh, spirits, particularly, and it's almost certain to change, partly because of Brexit, but because of other economic pressures. NATO, as we've said, is struggling to redefine it itself in lots of different ways. The Russians are facing some big changes. Remember, Putin is due to step down in 2024. Nobody believes that he will, and we'll see how that transition works. Nobody thinks it will be a particularly peaceful or easy transition. Transition. And China is now really stepping into European politics with economic uh, measures, but others as well. And we talked a little bit about them. I mean, Chris mentioned that Costco own Piraeus, the port. They also own Hambantota uh, in, in Sri Lanka. They've got bases in Djibouti. We will feel the pressure of Chinese world politics in the 2020s. So it's going to be a difficult decade. Um, for all European powers and in Brexit Britain uh, you know Brexit didn't create these problems and, and Brexit is not the solution to them but Brexit in a sense whips away the safety net it means that we will not be able to afford to make very many mistakes as we try to navigate through these difficulties for the next five to eight years. And what are your main concerns what should our new government and the armed forces be doing and thinking uh, and are they doing it? The main concern is, is in terms of defence, it's sustainability. We do all the right things in defence. We tick all the right boxes and we still know that we've got very good personnel with pretty world-class equipment, but they're just we know there isn't enough of either them or it. And we lack sustainability. We lack enough... To, uh, to spend on those sorts of things but also across the board in diplomacy in on intelligence in research and development on soft power my argument is we should brigade all of these things we presently spend about 50 billion on those things 50 to 58 billion on all of those things we should add another 20 billion we should spend about a third more for five years to have a strategic surge pull them all together so that we can actually make an impression on the rest of the world and ourselves to convince our friends and ourselves that we still have some significance and that we can actually go out and pursue prosperity with an across-the-board defense and foreign and intelligence and aid policy that makes some sort of sense. We've when, got to get away from this declinism which has affected us since 2014, in effect. So when you talk about a strategic surge, what do you mean exactly? What have we not been doing? We need to um, fuse those things together more. We need to make good some of the uh, the damage. I mean, we all know about the damage to defence with hollowed out forces. Um, the damage to our diplomacy has been tremendous because we've got a very wide network of diplomats, but it's really thin. In in many many embassies around the world, we've got two people. Um, you need ten or fifteen people in an embassy at least, and you need forty or fifty in the bigger embassies. Um, our research and development is lousy um, in the sense that it's about half of what. What our competitors are doing. We spend 30 billion on defence, and only, the government only puts in one. Sorry, on research, and the government only puts in one and a half billion of that. And even then, with all that the private sector puts in, we do less than half of what all our competitors in the OECD do. So we need a big increase in those sorts of things. And the argument is, you, you may not be able to increase them forever, but if you surge at them for five years, you could make a significant difference to actually give Brexit Britain a chance of looking more successful than at the moment. It it seems as if it might look. In researching this book, did you come across anything that surprised you? 
Yes, the, the, the speed with which social change has happened in Britain. Uh, if you look at the census in 2001, then the census in 2011, and then some of the trends that will lead up to the census of 2021, there's been big social change in Britain. And, and the argument in the book is that the, there are five kingdoms in Britain now, the Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, London is the fourth kingdom, and the fifth kingdom is England outside London. And the fifth kingdom is where most people live, but it's poor, it's angry, and it's volatile. And it's the it's the problems of the fifth kingdom, uh, which are pushing so many of the decisions which re react badly on defence and foreign affairs and so on. Christopher, you've got to go out and buy the book, haven't you? Really, <laughs> it's, it's the perfect stocking filler for Christmas. It the is perfect stocking filler, twelve pounds, who, 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 and, who, who, and, and at least on. one. Uh, and as far as I can make out, the, the former uh, CDS uh, Lord Richards has already read it. Uh, now, listen, has he given you feedback approves. there, Michael? Yes, and, and yes. approves. But can I just one thought that we do, we can't we can't just slip in. Um, we're going into a new United Kingdom. Uh, the monarchy is going to change. The Queen, uh, bless mm. her, is, is 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 not that long for the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, we are going to a Brexit government, which is not necessarily which, which, which party sort of gets control. It changes the way the United Kingdom is going to have to function, is going to take its part in some economic uh, statement to the rest of the world. We are going to find in question the union of the four existing countries. Um, and we could end up with, we could end up with uh, the ambitions of the, uh, the SEP sort of getting there. And that's being an independent mm. Scotland. Yeah. Ireland, Ireland, and uh, one island in the island of Ireland is quite possible. It'll be rather like cricket. Wales and England will be what, what is left. And we've got to start thinking what a future Britain wants, uh, just as people, uh, just as the change in politics. And once you start changing, as, as might well happen in that 10 years that we're really talking about, and that is the changing of the voting system. Mm. So we, that's exactly it, yeah. We, we do look at all that, Christopher, because that's yeah. exactly it. The, 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 the domestic basis of British society is critical to our defence and our foreign policy. And that domestic basis not only has changed a great deal in the last 10 years, but will keep on changing. And two of the things that we talk about, one is that we need a constitutional convention to seriously address the constitutional problems of our country. And possibly the only way to save the United Kingdom will be to federate it fully. Mm. And the second thing that you raise is the, the, royal, the royal family. We all know the royal family is moving towards a period of great transition. And it's two, it's a generational change. And it's two big priorities for the 2020s. We'll be holding the Commonwealth together. And secondly, going back to the royal families of the 17th and 18th centuries, holding the country together. And believe me, you know, the research we've done and my co-writer has been working in the royal households. She knows that the royal family are seized of this, that mm. they need to get out and about around the kingdoms of Britain to start a conversation about the sort of country we want to be in the 2020s. In this respect, our, you know, our rather ceremonial royal family is going to look much more like the royal family of the late 18th century uh, in the next 10 years. And the book is called Tipping Point, Britain, Brexit and Security in the 2020s by Michael Clark and Helen Ramscar. Now more on the general election. Last week we reported on the defence positions of the Labour Party and the Lib Dems. Now let's look at the Conservative Party. James Hurst was at the Tory manifesto launch in Telford. The Conservative leader and his messages got a rock star welcome. We're going to get Brexit done. Okay. Even if he did seem to keep going back to the same tune. Get Brexit 
done. In the manifesto document, there were some new pledges, like adding 50,000 nurses to the NHS, a promise of no income tax rises, but no substantial new defence promises. Again, we're told the Conservatives would make a new law to stop vexatious legal claims against veterans. Defence spending would stay on the same track, double-locked, at least 2% of national income, and rising at least half a percent above inflation. But Mr Johnson faced questions about whether he planned to cut the size of the armed forces after dropping past manifesto pledges to protect personnel numbers. Uh, we will not be cutting our, our armed services in any form. We will be maintaining the size of our armed services. I'm delighted to see Secretary of State for Defence nodding uh, fervently in the, fr in the front row. The potential problem for Mr Johnson is since the pledge was made in 2015, the forces have still got smaller. The army is now 10% below trained strength, a point I put to Conservative candidate and former RAF squadron leader Darren Henry. There will certainly be decimation under Corbyn and the Labour, Labour Party. So uh, we need to have a Conservative Party if we want to have a strong armed forces going forward. That's something Labour fervently denies, but really nobody seems to be making defence a big battleground. There are though still two and a half weeks for possible surprises before polling day. James has Forces News, Telford. Uh, Christopher Lee, it wasn't only the Conservatives who've launched their manifesto, was it? It's the Scottish Nationalist Party as well. No, that's right. The First Minister was very good on this. She, as understandably, would say, out Trident. They don't want Trident in Scotland. But what's the difference between her and, let's say, everybody else? She said, you take the money from Trident and you use it for the military as an alternative uh, to what you're doing at the moment. And that's quite different from everybody else who wants to build hospitals with the money. Professor Michael Clark, very, very, very quickly, this morning you were at Defence Hustings at Rusi. Anything interesting there? Yeah, only in the sense that um, Ben Wallace, uh, Conservative uh, Defence Minister, he, his his pitch really was who do you trust with defence, Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn uh, or or Boris Johnson? And Neil Griffiths, the Labour spokesperson, really had a bit of a tough time trying to make out that Jeremy Corbyn could be trusted with defence. And on that note, we'll leave it for today. Thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS Sitrep from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>